0: Hello, JBS viewers, I'm David Harris, and it's my great pleasure to have with me the president of Brandeis University, Ron Liebowitz. And in the interest of full disclosure, I should tell you that one of my sons is a graduate of Brandeis University, though before Ron's tenure. And several months ago, uh, I accepted an offer to become a trustee of Brandeis University. With that, Ron, welcome.
1: Thank you. Thank you, David. Appreciate it.
0: Ron, I have to begin with the question that's on the minds of many JBS viewers, I'm certain. And that is, as a university president, how has your life changed since October 7th?
1: Well, on a personal level and then a professional level, um, both uh, changed dramatically. On the professional level, um, I would say that all the issues that surround uh, Israel um, and the Middle East um, really was amped up quite a bit. Uh, as a result of what happened on October 7th. Uh, we could talk about that in greater detail, but you can imagine the intensif- intensification of feelings and really the hardening of feelings um, that occurred. And we can talk more about how and why as well. Personally, uh, I have to admit, uh, October 7th was a watershed for me, not so much from seeing the heinous acts of the Hamas uh, terrorist attacks. That was awful in its own way. And also finding out about it by hearing about it um, from hearing about a, a colleague of ours, an emeritus professor from Brandeis, uh, an alumnus of Brandeis, Elon Trow, and a great, great person, and his wife, Carol, um, losing a daughter and a son in law. That's how I heard about this first um, through a text message early Saturday morning. So that was very, very difficult to bear. But what's been most, um, I think, uh, the biggest thing that happened for me personally. Was the reaction of the world to what happened, and I think that has shaken me uh, to the core in many ways. Um, the world has changed in some ways, seeing the reaction to this horrible act, and I think I'm carrying that with me, as I think many people are. I'm trying to keep it out of my professional um, uh, role as president of university, um, but in any case, it's it's been pretty it's been a a
0: big change. I I can imagine, but you are president of Brandeis. What did you see as your role as president of a university post-October the 7th? Because that's been very much, obviously, under discussion and debate throughout the United States.
1: Well, as president of a college or university, one of the first things we think about all the time is safety. Safety of our uh, of our students, our faculty, and our staff. And that might sound a little bit odd, but as I used to say, going to bed every single night, you know, thinking about the students. You know, where are they? What are they doing? Et cetera. Um, this incident, of course, um, makes that even more uh, important in many ways because of the emotions that have been uh, unleashed from this um, this situation. I feel my job has always been um, to sort of create the best learning environment for our students. Uh, and so that, of course, amounts to traditional things such as academic freedom and freedom of speech. But on the other hand, has to be balanced with creating and ensuring a safe environment for those discussions and conversations. And so what I've been focusing on uh, with my colleagues um, and also with other presidents of other college universities, discussions about how best to preserve what we need to do to provide uh, the best uh, educational environment, but at the same time, ensuring that students are safe uh, to engage in that. So that's really been first and foremost on our mind.
0: Ron, it's fair to say that you've actually been a leader and, I would say one of the very few leaders in higher education who has set a very clear moral position from day one. You said it to the Brandeis community, you said it in an op-ed to the Boston Globe, you said it in some decisions you made. Why did you feel that it was so important to be so public about it, number one, and number two, to the extent that you feel comfortable, why is it so rare in higher education today?
1: well i felt it was important um not only to set the tone uh, to set an example but to call it as it was i mean what i saw early on uh, to my amazement because we put a message out immediately seeing what it was that this was a terrorist act and nothing nothing more you had to call it what it was um i think it got lost in the whole issue of the challenges of trying to uh, understand the middle east conflict uh and trying to understand how people's understandings of the Middle East conflict is so different and so varied on a university and college campus. And so um, maybe because Alan Trowan and Carol Troen, um had uh, such a personal uh, issue uh, having their, their daughter and son-in-law killed, and the first thing I learned about this was through that, maybe that um, really just pushed me forward. But in any case, I think it was important to state it as it was. Now, why are other Uh, presidents or why were other presidents having a little bit more of a challenge? I think it was difficult for them to separate out Uh, this incident from the broader picture Um, this is something that i think about and i think i said this in the boston globe article or at least one of them is that you know identify very much as a jew and also as a zionist very much supportive of israel and so i'm constantly thinking of these issues and so it wasn't so confusing to me what was going on here and what needed to be done i think it's more difficult if you're not uh you know in this all the time and at brandeis being a Jewish founded institution that has close ties to Israel with many people here having relatives and family in Israel, close relationships and so forth, it's always on our mind. And so perhaps it was a little bit easier uh, for me uh, than for others. But I will say in a gathering of many uh, college and university presidents, you know, uh, the week after uh, this, you know, we gathered in Washington for a big meeting. I was um, disappointed uh, by people's uh, inability to understand this even eight or nine days later. Uh, failure to see this, or the importance of calling it what it was, Uh, more or less worried about free speech, all of a sudden, that free speech now had no limits, whereas before, of course, it did. You know, citing neutrality for us as presidents and leaders of institutions, not taking sides. To me, and I express this very openly, this was not about taking sides. This was calling something for what it was and understanding why there was such criticism in the public domain about higher education and about we as leaders. Why were they criticizing us? They weren't criticizing us because we might be taking sides in this conflict. They were criticizing us because we didn't have what they felt, the outside public felt, you know, was a moral compass or or a spine to call things what they were. Um, But I think over time, as you've seen, many university presidents, either because of pressure or because of thinking things through, um, have begun to come around and think about how this has really um,
0: deeper ties to other issues that they have to confront on their campuses. Ron, you mentioned the word neutrality, and sometimes we hear from from university leaders the notion of, quote, institutional neutrality. Do you buy that um, as a premise of, of university leadership? I can buy it.
1: Um, it's something that interests me. I believe that Chicago, University of Chicago, going back to 1967, has taken this position and been consistent, and I respect that. I don't believe selective neutrality works. And I believe you have to sort of uh, ask the fundamental question about why all of a sudden is neutrality, you know, front and center? Is it because it's Israel? Is it because there's anti Semitism out there? What is the real reason? Um, So I believe you can have a neutrality policy uh, so long as it's done consistently. But what we're talking about and what happened in Israel is not an issue of neutrality. This is something about which I would never stay neutral. Uh, This was not about taking sides. As I said before, this was about calling out what occurred uh, in Israel on that particular day. Uh, You don't need to have a context. You don't need to start talking about history or whataboutism. This was a horrific act that needed to be called out, and it really doesn't fall to me within the context of um, neutrality.
0: Ron, you got a lot of attention for making a clear distinction between free speech and hate speech. Free speech having an open home at a university and hate speech having no home. And that also led you to an important decision on Students for Justice in Palestine. Can you take the JBS viewers through that process? Yes, uh, I, I'm a firm believer in free
1: speech and free expression. In fact, uh, I commissioned in 2018, a special task force here at Brandeis, to look into this It worked for eight or nine months, 18 people on the committee, including two trustees and two students along with faculty and staff. And they came up with five principles or six principles for free expression. Um, And one of the issues that came up, interestingly, I mean, they're very much similar to the Chicago principles, which is known to be the gold standard in higher education. And one of the issues that came up, interestingly, among three or four people on the committee and why they felt that they could not sign on to the document was that there was no reference in it to how underrepresented individuals or people who didn't have a voice, you know, might be protected. And this was seen as, um, you know, problematic among some members. Um, we had to in, we had to put a sixth principle into the five that were proposed by the um, free speech absolutist, I call them, which had to do with time, space and manner. Now, even the gold standard, you of know, Chicago has uh, um, a time, place and manner um, uh, aspect to theirs. And so it wouldn't be so unusual for Brandeis or anyone else to do it. So we put that in there. So we have these principles in place. When um the Justice for students, uh, Justice for students in Pal- J- the Justice for students of Palestine, um when they met on campus and you know, began by putting out just basically passing through the message from the national organization that was filled filled with hate uh, and really spoke to the uh, eradication of the State of Israel and also talked to violence against Jews and Jewish c- uh, civilians through the Intifada Intifada chant. Um, I felt that crossed the line. I felt that that was unnecessarily provocative. You know, free speech doesn't mean uh, that you can just say anything anywhere. Uh, It means that there's a time, place and manner for it. And uh, to me, uh, this was the wrong um, type of the wrong type of uh, message uh, to be uh, espoused in trying to support Palestinians. There are many ways in which students could support Palestinians. They needn't take these slogans that were intentionally provocative and also, you know, were insightful. So when you look at speech and you say, when does it cross the line? For me, it crosses the line, you know, when it tries to incite violence, uh, when it harasses, or when it um, intimidates. And those, these three, those three things are recognized uh, across the board. But for some reason, free speechers believe that, you know, students should be able to say anything, anywhere with no consequences. So that led us to say, we are not going to silence students. Students can say what they want and face their consequences. But in the case of dechartering um, this um, Justice for Students in Palestine, uh, students, for students, in Palestine for <laughs> students for Justice in Palestine, Students for Justice in Palestine, SJPS. Yes. In order to uh, decharter them, what we were saying was they cannot be affiliated with Brandeis, they can't carry Brandeis's name, they can't receive funding from Brandeis, they can't reserve space or any privilege that comes with being affiliated with the university. That's not to say they can't continue uh, to say what they're gonna say. They might be punished for it because we have codes of conduct, but we will not have them as a student organization represented on campus. It's been interesting to see the response uh, that I've gotten. I've received over 2,400 emails From far and wide um, thanking me and thanking the university for taking a stand, um, agreeing with me. There were about 35 or so negative um, individual emails that came to me. I received a letter from almost 500 alumni of Brandeis um, requesting that we reinstate the organization feeling that was a violation of free speech. I believe that these individuals meant well, but I do believe they misunderstand what free speech means on a university campus, or at least on a private university campus like ours. Um, But by and large, this has been very much um, supported. I will also add that some university presidents called me immediately uh, after this decision to ask questions about how we went about deciding this, Um, did we speak to legal counsel, did we check and so forth? And the answer, of course, was yes to all those. Um, Those university presidents who called me have not acted on this just yet. Uh, I think they reported that they had a lot of um, internal turmoil within their legal counsel uh, offices uh, trying to figure out the best way to do this. We decided to do this. Uh, We thought it's right for Brandeis, and we think it's right for higher education.
0: I think it's very important for the JBS viewers to know as well that on November the 28th, there was a full-page statement placed in the Boston Globe, which will appear in other newspapers in the coming days, a statement by the trustees of Brandeis University, I think it's quite unusual, perhaps um, unprecedented, I'm not sure, that uh, expressed full support for Ron Liebowitz, the positions he's taken since October the 7th, uh, and full support for the way the university has responded to all of the challenging issues since October the 7th. So I would encourage JVS viewers to find a copy of that statement uh, and to read it and to understand how Brandeis has set itself apart. Another way Brandeis has set itself apart, uh, Ron, was in its founding, dialing back to 1948, if I can go to a broader lens now. And in in the founding of Brandeis, at a time when there were restrictive quotas at many top-tier universities for Jews, there were, there were two important words placed into the founding statement, uh, many, but two in particular, Jewish and non-sectarian. And ever since in the last 75 years, how have those two played out vis-a-vis each other, knowing that they sound great, but when the rubber hits the road, it can be challenging to reconcile both in the same breath?
1: it's very challenging uh it's what makes uh this job so um frustrating at times but also so rewarding at other times and i think a lot of it has to do with uh either one's understanding or misunderstanding about the word jewish you know what does jewish mean what it mean in 1948 what were the perceptions of jewish at the time and when you put non-sectarian in there and also sometimes people use the word secular to underscore the fact that we have never been uh, affiliated um, with um, the jewish religion per se Uh, But rather with Jewish in its broadest sense. So the idea that, you know, Jewish can connote Judaism as a religion, Jewish as a culture, Jews as peoplehood. um, All those are important factors in understanding the relationship and what we're trying to do at Brandeis. And I think over time, this, uh, the relationship between those two words, as you mentioned, has changed. And I believe we're at another inflection point now where those words mean so much more than before. Uh, we have a lot of students here. Um, you know, the one thing about Brandeis that's amazing when it started out, of course, it was predominantly Jewish because there was no home for Jewish students, as you mentioned before, at many, um, you know, leading institutions of higher education. Um, That percentage is down now to about 35 percent, at least by people declaring um, their religious affiliation. So maybe it's 35 to 40 percent. But in any case, we're a diverse community, number one. And number two, the diversity within the Jewish community here is quite remarkable. And that's something that does set Brandeis apart you know, in, in years prior to COVID, I don't know what the situation is right now because I haven't taken stock. You know, we had seven active minyanim on campus, We, from modern Orthodox to feminist egalitarian and everything in between. And they were very active and very, very robust. Um, it's a very, very vibrant Jewish life. Many schools that have large Jewish populations don't have this diversity. Now, that this diversity could be a challenge within diversity, um, because you, you have different points of view and The Jewish world loves to have uh, engagement, arguments, discussions, debates, and so forth. Um, But in any case, where we are now is uh, where we are now is at at a place when I became president in 2016, believed that this combination, although it creates challenges, is such an important distinguishing characteristic uh, as an institution. Um, Several faculty members, Jewish faculty members in my first few months here on campus, you know, had wonderful conversations with me, but always sort of ended the conversation with, well, why can't we be just like Tufts? And I was astounded at first to hear this because what drew me to Brandeis was this idea that we had this amazing tension of a great uh, university, research university, that was also had this Jewish identity uh, and founding. Um, and we, what I told the faculty who I, with whom I met was, well, two reasons. One, Tufts already exists, so why replicate <laughs> Tufts? And secondly, this is what distinguishes us. This is a distinguishing characteristic and we should be proud of this. I mean, the idea and the values upon which Brandeis was founded have now been copied by so many universities. Back in 1948, many weren't co-ed, many weren't admitting blacks, many weren't admitting Jews. But if you go on a college tour now and you listen to the tour, um, you know, the message is very similar to what Brandeis was espousing in 1948. And so I'm very proud of this. And I think this is something that we've been focusing on and trying to really instill some pride in the idea that we were Jewish founded uh, and what it means today. Now, since October 7th, the amount of uh, correspondences and the amount of advice I've been given in terms of what we should do now uh, to sort of um, highlight this relationship with the with our Jewish past is really been it's been heartening in many ways and it's comical in some others because everybody has an answer, but it's very important to us and I think it will always be and should always be an important characteristic of the university.
0: So Ron, uh, in my small slice of the world. Um, people are now talking about rethinking um, college plans for their children, their grandchildren. Uh, Whereas just a few years ago, people were asking, what's the point of Brandeis when all the universities in America today are open? Why do we need a particularly Jewish university? And if we want that, we have Yeshiva University um, here in New York. But I'm getting a sense again in that small sort of focus group of mine that people are beginning to say, you know what, Brandeis is something we want to look at much more seriously after October 7th because we're looking for safe spaces for our children and sane spaces for our children and (laughs) perhaps Brandeis has distinguished itself from many places by being both safe and sane. Is that just my small focus group or are you getting the same?
1: No, I'm getting that sense. It's interesting. Um, two things I'll say to that. First of all, um, our modern Orthodox community here is very active. And the advantage of being at a Brandeis is that they can actually observe. We're on the Jewish calendar. We've been on the Jewish calendar since our founding. So students never have to choose between going to class or observing um, their Jewish um, observance. Um, so that that's very good. So the modern Orthodox have this option here if they so choose. But, you know, the point is, at the 50th anniversary of Brandeis, we just celebrated our 75th last month. At the 50th, there was a very important article in the New York Times I remember by Ethan Bronner, I remember uh, who asked the question that you just asked, what is Brandeis to do now that Jews have arisen in all professions and there's no longer any problems of antisemitism in higher education? You know, they looked at the quota system where of course Harvard, Yale, Princeton had fewer than 10% or 10% Jewish quotas. Their populations went over 20 percent Jewish, you know, by the 1980s, 1990s. And so the question was, how does Brandeis survive without this uh, feeling of, of um uh, you know, of anti-Semitism? Uh, well, here we are, 25 years later, and now the percentages in those elite schools have fallen back down to 10 percent or fewer in some cases or less than 10 percent, shocking as it might sound. And we have anti-Semitism on on the rise. And so the question of, you know, which institutions are going to create that space, I don't like the term safe space because it carries so much with it. But I would say um, uh, the perfect educational environment in which one can both be who they are, uh, observe as they like, and also learn in a great environment. One of the things that gets lost in all this conversation about Brandeis is what a remarkable academic institution it is. I mean, it was admitted to the leading Research One group in 1985, you know, less than 40 years after its founding. Those are the elite, now 70 schools, Research One universities in North America. We're the smallest one, uh, punch way above our weight. Uh, Four Nobel Prize winners in science over the last 20 years. Just last month, I was invited to the White House to participate in an amazing event where two of our scientists uh, were awarded the uh, science medal National Science Medal by President Biden. Nine people were honored, two of them came from Brandeis. It was quite remarkable to see uh, that. Uh, So we've achieved so much on the academic side, uh, and now as we focus on what makes Brandeis distinct, and as you say, a sane and safe place, uh, to me it's a no-brainer that more students should be looking at Brandeis, and hopefully they will.
0: So Rod, that also brings me to non-Jewish students. We spoke about why Jewish students should feel comfortable and attracted but why should a non-Jewish student um, feel the same sort of pull toward Brandeis uh, as the Jewish student today?
1: Well, when my wife and I first three years here before COVID hit, you know, we hosted weekly lunches uh, in the office. We had 12 to 14 participants. And we asked every group uh, the same two questions that led the conversation and discussion. We had over a thousand people pass through those lunches in three years. And the questions, um, why Brandeis was always a question. And it didn't matter if students were Jewish or not Jewish. Now, for some, I'll say the most important reasons that students chose Brandeis, and we used to delve down deeply after we heard these answers, there were two. One was the academic rigor, that this was known to be an academic rigorous place where they'd be challenged, and they'd always wanted to be challenged as high school students. The other one was the university's commitment to justice. And, of course, this goes back to our Jewish founding and our Jewish roots. And so the values uh, of the institution were coming through to students, regardless if they were Jewish or not. The third reason was because of the Jewish calendar. And that was usually from students who were observant Jews who felt it was really important. And for them, it was the first or second um, reason. But those were the real reasons given. And I think non-Jewish students here, um, you know, they might feel... Uh, constrained if they didn't know the atmosphere here about being at a place that was somewhat different than other places running on a jewish calendar uh, being very very clear about its jewish roots and so forth but i think they also gained the advantage of learning uh, about the jewish world and learning about uh, the values upon which uh, many of which have become universal uh, in our society that date back to uh, our jewish heritage and so i think there's a lot of advantages to that we're 20 percent international, so students here have a diversity uh, to engage students from all over, uh, not just Jewish students, as I said before, who are about 35 or 40 percent of our population. Uh, and the academic program and and the community here, the value of the community, I think, is worth um, mentioning as well. So all these are attractions to students, whether you be Jewish or not. You can have the best of both worlds. Um, and, and I think
0: most students do. And be on the edge of Boston, one of the great cities in America. <laughs> to yeah,
1: beyond, exactly. You know, nine miles or 10 miles from, you know, as the crow flies, we're nine miles from Fenway Park, I like to say. And the nine <laughs> is an important number because it's Ted Williams' number. Uh, but in any case, we're accessible. We have the MBTA station right at the base of campus so students can get in and out. We have shuttles to Cambridge and Boston so students can go on the weekends. Yes, there's, all, there's an incredible uh, amount of uh, advantages to come to a place like this.
0: Ron, you you more or less said it, but let me phrase the question directly to you. You were at Middlebury College for just over 30 years as a faculty member, as dean, as provost, and then the last 11 years as president. Uh, I happen to know Middlebury. I applied there as a high school student long before your time. Uh, It's sort of the idyllic New England College when we think about the image. Why would you choose to leave that idyllic space in Vermont in order to take on this challenge at Brandeis?
1: I didn't leave Middlebury to take on the challenge of Brandeis. It was really interesting. Um, you know, um, when I married uh, my wife, Jessica, uh, she had never lived in a small town. Oh, uh, okay. I started my career at Middlebury, you know, as a 26-year-old faculty member. And um, and when she came to live with me and we started a family, you know, she said to me, when the oldest kid is 11, we're out of here. Um, you know, she was very committed to the Jewish community in New York, Washington, and Cambridge, where she was before coming to Middlebury. Um, And so I said, sure, that's great. And so when our president, my presidency ended, um, when our when our kid was 11 years old, uh, I listened to her. um, We packed up and I said, it's up to you where you want to go. And since for her. Uh, it was an effort to keep our kids engaged jewishly i mean she used to drive up to burlington 35 miles away to take our kids to chabad uh preschool so that you know they could have engagement with the jewish world we had kids at, at at middlebury who went to jewish day school tutor our kids teaching them hebrew and teaching them um tanakh and so forth so they had little bits of this but there really wasn't much of a jewish community in middlebury vermont And so it was up to her where we went next. And both of us are from New York City. I was sure we were moving back to New York City. That was both of our loves. That's what I thought would happen. But she, of course, went out on a a, a trip and and visited um, many cities from Seattle to San Francisco, to Los Angeles, to Chicago, to Philadelphia, to Washington, to Boston, to look where our kids can jump in to Jewish day school and be part of the community. And she was smarter than I was in this in the sense that she X'd out New York immediately because we both know the Jewish communities of New York. They're very siloed and they're very difficult to break into. And she chose Boston after sitting in a Jewish day schools across the country. And it shocked me because as a New Yorker, I never liked Boston. It was the last place I would have chosen to move to, to be honest. But we had a sabbatical leave together and she chose this and we came. Our kids started the Solomon Schechter Day School. That next year, we were doing a research project here in Boston. Brandeis was not on the on the radar screen. In fact, we had determined we're not going to do any more college presidencies. We loved it at Middlebury, but we were going to move on to something else. Um, and then the Brandeis uh, search committee kept calling and calling and saying, just have a meeting, just have an interview. Um, and so that's what happened. finally, Jessica and I both relented and said, OK, I'll meet the committee and see what it's like. And from there, you know, what really made the difference was two close friends of my wife calling and saying, rumor has it, Ron is being called and not interested in the Brandeis um, presidency. It's a great, great place. You have to check it out. So I got the three books on Brandeis that were written uh, across the street from our home. We live in Chestnut Hill. So I went to the Boston College Library. I took out three books. Uh, I perused them for a day, uh, left them on the coffee table and told Jessica to do the same. She, she woke up the next day and she said, how could you not want to try to be associated with Brandeis? What an incredible place. We both knew Brandeis, but we didn't know the deep history of Brandeis. And reading those three books was really something. And so threw the hat in the ring and went through the search process and wound up being offered the
0: job. So here we are. It's a great story. It's a great way to end this interview, though I have lots more questions for you, Ron, perhaps another time. JBS sure. viewers, uh, this is David Harris, Defending Israel, my guest today has been Ron Leibowitz, the president of Brandeis University. I'm Yisrael Chai. Thank you, Ron. You're very welcome.